Welcome to another podcast from Generations Church. We trust you will be encouraged today. All right. Well, I spent a good 10 minutes this morning in the first service letting people know that even though this was our last Sunday in the series, we never stopped talking about relationship, only to have Christine frantically waving me down, (laughs) reminding me that after Vision Sunday next week, we have one more installment in the series. Um, and and that's, that's good. I'm excited. Christine is, uh, actually, Tyler and Christine are some of our very favorite people. Not that we don't love you all, but when it comes to relationship, um, I know that watching Tyler and Christine come into and engage in our church and watching their excitement and then also their frustration uh, is what we're going to be talking about this morning. Guys, relationship is so hard. And that's the title of the message today. It's just, is hard because the series is relationships, or are hard, sorry, so when you put it all together, it's relationships are hard. Um, before I go any farther with that, though, I do want to just make a statement for our church, uh, for our, the church that joins us online, uh, with regard to uh, James Coates, pastor in Edmonton, who has been arrested and is in jail. Um, let me just say this. I really don't care what your opinions or your concerns or viewpoints are on how churches, even individuals who follow the rules, um, it's not that I don't respect your thoughts or your opinions on it. Um, we are in an unprecedented and very disturbing situation. We're in the province of Alberta, which up until now I would have said was the freest province in one of the freest nations on the world, where the government has actually arrested a pastor for holding church services. It doesn't matter to me the, the technicalities and the qualifications of rules are not being broken. I mean, the guy can be fined, and the church can be fined, and, and that might be appropriate and it might not, but there is a line that has been crossed that is completely unacceptable. The conditions of that pastor's release were unacceptable for any man of God or woman of God to comply with. In fact, in the early church, when we saw the Romans arrest the early church fathers, they, they would release them with conditions as well. Well, we'll let you go, but we're not, you can't preach anymore. Our premier, who I do love, agape love, and I desperately do want to support, has said no one in this province is going to be limited in preaching, holding services. But then I read a little further down in one of his posts that the pastors ought not to be preaching, liber- in his words, libertarian messages. Guys, Jesus has called us to follow him and do this explicitly. Proclaim freedom to the captives. To speak liberty and freedom wherever we go. This is a, this is a situation that there is no compromise for. And I am not saying that we should resort to anarchy or even civil disobedience. By the way, Pastor Coates is not an anarchist. He is doing what many pastors would do, and that is not going to turn people away from our church. We are able to go to two services, three, maybe even four if we have to. We're able to do that. Some churches aren't. Let me tell you, that man, that church, those are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I appreciate that you may have differing views on how they've responded to government regulation. But I do not care about your views when it comes to dividing the body of Christ. Pray for the man. Pray for his family. 
honestly, I don't know. I can't say what I agree or disagree with, but it doesn't matter to me. When my brother in Christ is in prison, I'm compelled by the Spirit of God to pray for him and lift him and hold him up and hold that church up. That's all I'm going to say about that. Well, it may come up again in the message, actually. but uh, It's not supposed to. So, uh, Generations Church, it was our last when I was thinking about it, but it's not our last. That doesn't really matter because here at Generations Church, we never stop talking about relationship. It is a fundamental uh, value for us. It's a cornerstone that we built on. Um, I, I grew up in a great church, but man, I saw a lot of shallow relationship. And so when we planted Generations Church, I served in several churches in my internship days as a youth pastor and, and college and all those things. And, and, I, and I saw a good relationship, but I didn't, see, I didn't see a church that focused on authentic, life-giving relationship in the way that my heart felt called by God to focus on it. And because of that, because relationship is what it is to our church, it's really hard. And I think what the day around us is proving right now is that relationships are, in fact, hard. It's really difficult. Um, Relationship, to be good, takes conversation. And relationship takes more time than you want it to take. But once that relationship is cooking, I promise you, you will lose all track of time. It's funny how that works. Relationship is high risk if you've been hurt. And it can be paralyzing for you if you're insecure. But it is actually, relationship is actually the key to both our healing and our security. Think on that. And in all of this, relationships being hard, I want to start with this this morning. Jesus identifies with our weakness. If you have your Bible, we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 4. And read verses 15 and 16. And I chose the NIV this morning because of a specific word that it uses. And we'll unpack that just a little bit in a few moments. It says this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne. With a throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And I was interested in the NIV uh, version because it used that word empathize. And uh, it's not a very well understood word because it's actually a relatively new word um, compared, to some, compared to a lot of others. And, and honestly, frankly, there are some serious ideological issues in what that word means, and for, especially for us who follow Jesus, to what it means and, and how that should be a part of our life. Um, and, and I think that I think we're going to have some great conversations about this in the future. About a year ago, there was a group of men in our church who actually had some lengthy discussions about that word empathize. And, and um, I mean, there are some modern-day commentators of the Bible that would go as far as to say empathy is sin. And that actually can be true at a point. Uh, but I think let's, let's boil it down to the Greek and boil it down to what the heart of God is, and, uh, and then let's go from there, if that's okay with you. Even if it's not okay with you, I don't care. Um, that's, that's what we're going to do, and if, if you ever want to do it, I do. Feel free to be called of God and go plant a church. If you keep your hair, good for you. I love you anyways. I, I, hey, we'll probably support you and love you and help you. Um, anyways, and laugh at you, and cry with you, and laugh at you some more. Anyways, um, most translations at the end of my little <laughs> comment right here, 
uh, use the word sympathize or even touch with. And there's a Greek word, sympatheo, is uh, the word that is used, uh, of course, and we get our English word sympathy from that. It even sounds like uh, sympathy. But what the, the definition of sympatheo is to have a fellow feeling with. To sympathize with. The usage would be, I sympathize sympathize with or I have compassion on. And because that is where we get our word sympathy, it fits really well. But you see, Jesus is actually more than sympathetic. Jesus is actually more than compassionate. It's coming from a place. when, When Jesus says, I have compassion... Or in the Bible records, Jesus was moved with compassion. It's for this reason, that he has and is coming from a place of relational understanding because he actually does literally relate personally to the struggle. Because he has been in it. One of the problems with a word like empathy is that it invites people to get down and crawl around in the brokenness and the mess and the sin. And, you know, there's a lot of problems with that. Sympathy and compassion are much better words when it comes to that. But the fact will remain that this word, empathize, puts Jesus in our shoes. It puts him in our physical reality as we face temptation. But of course, the great thing for us, for you and I, is that Jesus did all that, but yet did not sin. Um, I want to read to you from the Amplified Bible because it actually it actually fills in some great holes in this conversation. Um, It says this, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize and understand our weaknesses and temptations, but one who has been tempted, knowing exactly how it feels to be human. See, that that goes into empathy at that point. Because he knows, because he's done it himself. In every aspect as we are, yet without committing any sin. Therefore, let us with privilege, somebody say with privilege. It's going to be important. With privilege, approach the throne of grace. That is the throne of God's gracious favor. With confidence and without fear, so that we may receive mercy for our failures and find his amazing grace to help us in time of need. An appropriate blessing coming just at the right moment. Now that all sounds good on Sunday morning. But when you and I are in the pit of despair, relationally, fighting it out, problems are in the marriage, problems with the kids, problems with coworkers, problems on the internet with your Facebook friends, wherever your relational difficulties might be. It's easy to say that, but we often forget that the context of this verse and the context of approaching God's throne of grace is actually all relational. And it takes confidence to approach the throne of grace. It's a part of of what needs to happen. Confidence is a requirement to receiving God's grace for help. You can't come unless you have confidence that God is going to speak to you. God is going to love you. And that confidence is actually a choice on your part. You can choose to be confident in something. People do it all the time. They they pick the quote-unquote truth that suits them, and they become confident in it. Right? I, I've said before, I might not always be right, but I'm always sure. Right? <laughs> but the truth is usually I'm right. Right, hon? I'm sure. She's sure that I'm often right, maybe even usually right. Um, being both oldest children, Amy and I have a wonderful banter um, that, that goes on and brings light, life, and love to our marriage. We actually do have a lot of fun. Um, 
And uh, listen, grace is sufficient for agape, for love, to reign. And confidence is required to approach to receive grace for help. And, and I want to be clear on this, guys. Grace is the help. Lots of people pray to God for a solution. And what God's response is, well, I'm going to give you grace. So he says this, my grace is sufficient for you. No, Lord, I don't want your grace. I want help. I want a bailout. I want a mailout. I want a call out. I want a rollout. I want a free truck. I want to win the lottery. That's the help. And God's good. that's not the help I'm going to give you. The help I'm going to give you is grace and peace and hope and faith and love. God's help that he gives is actually grace. And God's grace is his divine unmerited favor. I love it. I love that it puts me in a place of reliance on him and not on my own ability. I love that it puts me in a place of reliance on him and not reliance on what I one day hope my bank account might be. It doesn't let me put my reliance on things, earthly things, temporal things. Because when we throw that word privilege around in this day and age, what are we really talking about? We're talking about the stuff you have access to. But that's not what privilege is about. Privilege is about who God says you are. It's about the spirit of sonship, the spirit of adoption, the Bible says, by which we cry, Abba, Father. There was a long time in my life where people would ask me, hey, how are you doing? And I would say this. I'd say, I'm great. I am blessed. I'm highly highly esteemed, and I'm favored by God. So life is awesome. And people would look at me, typically church people, would look at me and be like, well, you're cocky. And actually, that's not, it's not cocky at all. It's humbling. But it's true. I am the most privileged person. Because my father has done something for me that I could not do for myself. And it in fact does in the spiritual realm put me in a different place than people who don't know my father. And you're the same as me. And so just so you know, as those who follow Jesus, we ought not be ashamed about the word privilege because the privilege that you and I walk in with our Heavenly Father was bought with a price, and it was the blood of Jesus. I will take all the Christ privilege. Let's just, let's just throw it out. Throw out white privilege. That's a bunch of crap anyways. Throw out color privilege. How about Christ privilege? See, that'll preach. Check your Christ privilege. I did. It is by grace I have been saved through faith, not by my works, so I can't brag about it. That is Christ's privilege. Man, that that just seems so good in this moment. (laughs) Check your Christ's privilege. Oh, I did, and I'm thankful. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Come on. There's some things driving me nuts that are obviously leaking into the message today. (laughs) Obviously, and I hope they're driving you nuts too. Because relationships are hard, and we don't get to run away from them. We're called to press into the mess. We're called to walk into the difficult areas of people's lives, and we're called to bring Jesus into that situation. So we got to do it. We got to go. I'm talking to you about this. You're wondering, Pastor Trev, why are you talking about it this way? Grace and empathy and sympathy. I'm talking about it because you are in this world. Do you guys remember the Lord of the Rings where the little hobbit says to the tree, but you're a part of this world. I know that wasn't right at all. Whoever it was, Pippin. Tyler, you can probably tell me. You're a Lord of the Rings geek. (laughs) Pippin or Mary, right? 
but you're a part of this world. It's kind of, I'm a, it's a bad, I don't, I don't have a good Hobbit accent. I can do Irish or Scottish or a few others, but this is the truth, church. You're a part of this world. You're in it, not of it, but you're still a part of it. And you don't get to go and take your, take your Christ privilege and go hide under a rock and plug your ears and curl up in the fetal position and rock yourself to get Jesus loves me, this I know. See, because once you realize Jesus loved you, it's no longer about you. It's about the ones who don't know that he loves them. Boom. First service didn't get that. They didn't. That was for you and for you online. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's good. I think the Spirit of God wants to say something. All right. Relationships are hard. Jesus identifies with our weakness. Why? Because of a little man. Not Well, maybe he wasn't little. I'm just going to say the word, say the name, and you're going to get it right away. Judas. Right? Judas. Oh, that's bad. We know by human standards, Judas represents the ultimate betrayal. And I mean everywhere. In totally secular corporate workplaces, you will actually hear people throw out the term, don't be a Judas. Right? You ratted out on who was dating who and who was seeing who in the photocopy room. Bro, don't be a Judas. You, right? Even secular people, humanist-minded people, understand betrayal and associate the name of Judas with it. And just for curiosity, just for fun, just because I'm a super fun guy, I decided to look up how common the name Judas was for us in this day and age. And it turns out that Judas and Adolf are not common names. I, I, I won't give you the history lesson on why this morning. Um, but, but check this out. This is crazy. So people who named their babies Judas in 2016 and 2017, guess, guess, guess how many? This is like North America. 0.0004%. It's not a popular name because there's a real negative association with it. Guess what happened in 2018? 2018 must have been a year of betrayal. Because it was 0.0000 people used the name Judas for a baby boy. But then something crazy happened in 2019. It shot up the charts, rising to a high it hadn't seen in at least three or four years, to 0.0006%. Guys, it's not a popular name, and it's not a popular name because everybody who hears the name Judas in this day and age is in, in this part of the world. Anybody associated with Judeo-Christianity, even mildly, understands that Judas was the guy who betrayed Jesus. And that is awkward. Uh, for the record, the name of Judas is not a bad name. It means praised. And that's because of the Jude part, Judah. Uh, Judah means to praise, and so Jude... Jude, Judas is praised. Okay? It's, a, it's not a bad name at all. Uh, there was actually another disciple also named Judas, and he was good. He didn't betray Jesus. And for the record, I do know one person named Judas. And he's okay. He, he's not a bad guy. He's not a bad person. As far as I know, he loves Jesus. Right? Um, 
So yeah, he's okay. But think about this. Relationships are hard. Jesus identifies with our weakness. And sometimes you don't have an easy out from those people. You don't get to always pick and choose who you get to be with and how easy or hard it's going to be. Now, there are things you can do to make it harder or easier, but you really don't always get to choose. Sometimes you're bound to them by contract, maybe by time and space. You know, One time, Amy and I had to ride an airplane home with someone who I did not like. He was a jerk, and his girlfriend ate chips in the most annoying way possible. They were horrible people. They were. They were rude and mean to everyone on the plane around them. He was a jerk wearing his silk shirt, thinking he was all that. And I judged him, I believe rightly. (laughs) Maybe I wasn't. But he got to my carnality, and I was seriously, seriously frustrated. I was stuck on a plane with that guy. And the Holy Spirit led me to get vengeance according to the heart of God, which is a story for another time. You ask me about it over a campfire at a church event sometime, maybe I'll tell you. You know, we don't always get to get out of situations that are difficult. We don't have the option of just running away from hard relationships. Sometimes you got to stay in them. Sometimes you're the one who put yourself there, and God's not going to let you out because he wants you to learn something. Sometimes you're in a difficult relationship because you made stupid decisions, and you're stuck in it because you continue to make stupid decisions. No, no amen for that? Okay. I don't think I went too far. Um, There are a thousand kinds of analysis we can do on relationship, and that can apply, but the fact will remain, you're going to be in a relationship with people, and that can hurt you really bad. But don't ever forget that relationship can also be what heals you. It's what heals you. And sometimes the relationship that hurts you is also the relationship that heals you. The Lord proves sonship to us and that he disciplines the ones he loves. It's a fact. My sons are my sons. My daughters are my daughters because I'm their biological father. Yes, But I am more their father because I love them enough to discipline them. You know what the Bible says about disciplining your children? It says in disciplining your children, you may save them from a fate worse than death. So the relationship that hurts you at times can hurt you out of a deep love and thereby become your healing. Cool. Still not fun and it's still hard. Relationships are hard. And I've told you that Jesus understands our weakness, so let's consider why. The book of John, chapter 12, we find a room full of those people who presumably are maybe even Jesus, some of Jesus' closest people. This is his gang. This is his people. Here's what we find, John 12, 1 to 8. Therefore, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Yeah, that Lazarus, who had been in the tomb so long that the Bible says in the King James that by now he stinketh. And so they made him a dinner there, and Martha was serving, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very expensive perfume, pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who intended to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii? And the proceeds be given to the poor people. Now, he said this not because, I love that John wrote this, right? He recorded this. 
Now, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and as he kept a money box, he used to steal from what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial, for you always will have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. This is an incredibly complex relational scene that's going on. Just imagine, close your eyes if you need to. And imagine Jesus, you know, they, they didn't sit in chairs at tables in the culture. They actually had a low table and they would sit on their butts on the ground or cross-legged or, or even lay on their side with, you know, it's a pretty comfortable way to eat. Maybe we should do that more here. I can't imagine. Can you imagine if we got to eat Christmas dinner laying down? <laughs> oh, Ben, we would never get up. It would be so good. Just turkey. Oh, man, we got to try this. Um, maybe not. Maybe I should work out and eat less turkey. Anyways, um, understand this. So, so, so just picture this room. They're reclining. Things are chill. Judas secretly is, is like planning demonic things. Mary, who has been saved from something that we could hardly even imagine, loves Jesus as her Savior, her Lord, her teacher. And we have all the other disciples and any other people who might have been gathered in that room. And they each all have their own relationship with Jesus that is incredibly complex. I imagine, you know, Peter as divided in himself as ever. You know, because Peter, if you read the Gospels, Peter was quite a divided fellow, even in the book of Acts. I mean, he, he was obviously an emotional man. He chopped the ear off of somebody one day and he would deny Christ the next and I mean, just varying levels of passion, right? You got Matthew, the tax collector, who likely was the guy who really quickly figured out that's 300 denarii's worth of nard. And I wonder what some of the other disciples were thinking and processing. But this we know. In the other Gospels, the same story is recorded. And there was a consensus among the disciples that what Mary did wasn't right. Yeah, she, you're right, Judas. She should have given the money to the poor. Jesus breaks it all down. No, 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 no. She's anointing me for my burial, which they didn't really understand yet. Can you imagine how complex the relationships are? This is like, we don't see this kind of stuff. One commentator, McLaren, writes this, wind of the spirit, blowing away the cold air, melting the snow. Thank you, Lord. If you, if you would like to, just close your eyes this morning, and I will try to read this in a soothing and comforting voice for you. But the imagery that McLaren captures in his commentary of this passage is wonderful to me. This is what he says. His sullen black selfishness, stretching out like talons in eagerness to get, makes more radiant and is itself made darker by Mary's shining deed of love. Goodness always rouses evil to self-assertion. Now just hit pause and think about how true that is today. Goodness always rouses evil to get loud and assert itself. Truth. And the other evangelists connect Mary's actions with Judas' final treachery as a part of its impelling cause. They also show that 
his specious objection by its apparent common sense and charitableness found assent in and among the disciples. 300 denarii worth of good ointment wasted, which might have helped so many poor. Yes. And how much poorer the world would have been if it had not had this story. The 300 denarii worth of nard used to anoint Jesus. That value compared ultimately against the value of the lifeblood of Jesus being shed for you and me. See the contrast in the difficulty that is relationship. Mary was more utilitarian than her censors. She served the highest good of all generations by her uncalculating profusion by which the poor have gained more than some of the few might have lost. In other words, Mary didn't anoint the feet of Jesus because she knew the eternal weight of that action. Mary didn't realize she was anointing Jesus' body for burial to mark his death as happening in history so that he would be raised to life and purchase all back, ransom us back from sin. She didn't know. She's just utilitarian. She's going, Jesus did something amazing in my life, and because of that, I love him, I follow him, I serve him, so I will sacrifice the greatest things that I have for him. And these disciples many of whom became fathers of the early church, who died as martyrs for the cause of Christianity, speculated on that moment and thought she did the wrong thing. It's funny how perspective changes our mind. It's funny, in a way that's not funny at all, how sometimes perspective changes our mind. Judas' criticism, though, is still repeated. The world does not understand Christian self-sacrifice. For ends which seem to it shadowy as compared with the solid realities of helping material progress or satisfying material wants. Check your privilege. Because privilege to the world, when I analyze it, is simply the opportunity for material wants to be satisfied. A hundred critics who do not do much for the poor themselves will descend, will descant on the waste of money in religious enterprises. Oh, that church built such a big building. What if they gave that money to the poor? Well, they built the church and they gave a lot of money to the poor, just so you know. And they smile condescendingly at the enthusiasts who are so unpractical in their mind. But then the commentator writes this profound thing for me. But love knows its own meaning. Agape love does. Agape love is the only love that is not subjective in relationship. Phileo love, as I think I mentioned this last week, phileo love, brotherly love, is actually subjective. Oh, I get to know you, you get to know me, we're friends. Epimetheo, oh, I really love what you're wearing, babe. I think I'd like to go on a date now, right? I mean, 
I almost said something, and I'm not going <laughs> to. Amy's like, good. Amy will be dealing with it later this week. I can tell you that. But no, it's not what you think, obviously. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, I came across something that talked about the evangelical problem of men objectifying women, and it drove me absolutely nuts because it was ridiculous and unfair. Anyways, um, love knows its own meaning. Agape love is not defined by circumstance. Agape love is defined by God because it is divine in its origin. Epimetheo, subjective. Phileo. Even maternal love is subjective to that being your child or because you want to adopt that child. Love knows its own meaning if it's love. And I think we need to change it up. Rather than love is love, the church should be going around saying, no, no, agape is agape. Because that's the truth. But love knows its own meaning and need not be abashed by the censure of the unloving. In other words, people who don't know how to love themselves have no business trashing love or defining it. Please try to have ears for what I'm saying today. Better yet, ask the Holy Spirit to give you ears for what he's trying to say to you. Because I'm only hoping on the average Sunday just to be a vessel that really doesn't spoil too much what it is God wants to say to you. Relationship that is holy, good, and life-giving is the invitation Jesus wants to give the world through his own body, which is you and I. That's the invitation, is relationship. And, and relationship leads to this word we don't use much anymore, but fellowship. And I wouldn't even use the word fellowship. I would just stick to what we always say. Relationship leads to something that is life-giving if it's good relationship. By its very nature, it contrasts sharply with all other kinds of relationship that exist only to exploit the weak. And there are many kinds of relationship in our world today that exist only to exploit the weak. I laugh these days. Not pleasantly. Kind of that wry, dry, sarcastic laugh that we all make as we become older and more cynical and our bodies hurt more all the time. When I hear our government, whether it be federal or provincial, say the words, we're all in this together. No, we're not. But here's what I will say. There is a ruler who can say that. There is one who can say, I have walked in your shoes. I have carried your burden. I have bled your blood for you. I have cried your tears. I have taken your stripes on my back for your healing, and his name is Jesus. And he identifies with our weakness. He alone can say, we're in this together because he empathizes with our weakness. He sympathizes with our situation. And he has compassion on us because he himself has walked that road. There is no other leader that deserves the praise, the honor, the glory, the adoration, the admiration, and the lifting up like the name of Jesus, like the person of Jesus deserves. I want to support our government, even the one in Ottawa. But they are not going to save this world. 
As much as I like or dislike Jason Kenney or whoever the leader might be down the road, he's not going to save us. He's not going to save you. But there is one who is in this with you today. And he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. He will never walk away from you. He is simply inviting you to go with him into the situations that are difficult, that are too hard, where you might get hurt, where your security might be rocked, to bring the message of his love, to initiate, to initiate a relationship with people who don't know him yet. Hmm. Jesus is in touch with the difficulty of relationships. And let me just end with this. You can be like him, or you can be like someone else. <laughs> Sound guys are like, Argh! Hey, church, you can be like Jesus, or you can be like someone else. Those are your options. So be careful what you post online. Be careful how you speak to your wife or your husband. Be Jesus when you discipline your kids. I'm not saying I've got any of that figured out. But my hope and my prayer and my desire is that every day God allows me to live on this earth, that I'm becoming just a little bit more like Jesus. And if that's all we aspire to as his disciples, I want you to know I firmly believe that when we stand before him one day, that's what's going to get you well done, good and faithful servant. Just be like Jesus. Or be like someone else. Let me pray for you. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are our high priest that has walked in these shoes, that has, that has dealt with it, and yet you did it without sinning. And because of that, you have now received a name that is above every name. And by your Holy Spirit today, Lord, I pray that you would help us to hear. I pray that you would put your finger on the things in us that need to become more a reflection of you than someone else. God, today I pray that, that what we would begin to reflect in this time is the Spirit of God and the hands and feet of Jesus and the heart of a loving, compassionate Heavenly Father that does not compromise on what must be done and what is true. God, we need your wisdom. Holy Spirit, we need you to bring to remembrance all that Christ taught. Jesus, we need you to, to baptize us, to douse us, to dunk us, to immerse us in our friend, the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, I believe for each of us in this room and even watching online this morning, God, we are people who want to please you. Holy Spirit, would you remind us to come running before this throne of grace with full confidence as we are adopted as your sons and daughters, your children, to receive your grace that is our help in the difficulties of this relational world we'll call to. Thank you for joining us in another podcast from Generations Church. If you enjoyed listening today, please subscribe to our podcast channel to get a new one each week. For additional information or to partner with us, please check out our website at www.genchurch.ca.